When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, welcome into the latest episode of the show before the show podcast, the official podcast of minor league baseball. How often do you guys have to turn down the volume as soon as I start? (laughs) Yelling because I just saw Sam reach up to do that. I when I did the World Baseball Classic, uh, I was talking with our sound, our audio engineer Dan Cochran. Uh, Dan did our our WBC um, qualifier in Panama, and I was like, "How annoying is it that every time I come back from an inning break or start a broadcast or whatever, I'm at like a 14 on volume, and then I gradually settle down to like a normal volume? I feel like at the open of every." uh podcast episode i just well i don't feel like i can literally see it when i'm editing the waveform it's like so loud and then it gradually gets quieter and quieter and it normalizes to they like teach you not to do that in broadcasting school yeah well you know i have a i have a uh almost a three-year-old at home harry turns three next month and what you're talking about reminds me of a three-year-old. Yeah. You know, they're really loud and not really modulating properly when they first see you or get excited and then slowly level out and chill out a little bit so that's my, i'd say that you're the the toddler that's my of broadcasting. yeah that's my demographic <laughs> uh, mentally and uh and uh energy wise that's my demographic uh well welcome into the latest episode of the show before the show podcast tyler mon benjamin hill sam dykstra uh the guys back in the studio looking so professional on the bridge of the uss mlb and um we got a we got a bunch to get to first off how are you both? Looking good? Feeling good? How's things? Things are good. Yeah, things are good. It's a it's a busy time, uh, you know, in my area of the minors because it's top 100 reveal time. And Tyler, you and I can talk about that later. We won't actually talk about the top 100 yet. You will save that for next week's show. Uh, but last night I submitted my final blurbs for that. So all 100 prospect blurbs are in. Uh, very excited to get that out in the world. All our top 10s are complete as of today. Uh, so that's, it's been a, a fun few days getting that in the can. And now we turn towards team top thirties. So it never stops, but, uh, you know, it's, it's a good time to kind of pause and reflect and, and all the work that goes into this project and getting it out into the world for everybody else to read. For you and Jim Callis and Jonathan Mayo and, uh, you know, the contributors to our, our top 100 prospect rankings and even more for our top 30 prospect rankings, it is, uh, such a massive project and uh, a labor of love in a lot of ways um, as well. And uh, take the time to read through those because they are amazing and they teach you a lot about uh, your team's top prospects and all the top prospects across the game of baseball, uh, a fun time of year. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that, as Sam noted, going forward. Before we kick off this week's episode of the show, before the show, you can get in touch with us, of course, podcast at MILB dot com and uh you can find all of us on the social medias as well uh and we've got so much to discuss the big news headline around the world of baseball of course this week three new members of the national baseball hall of fame two first ballot entrants big congratulations to adrian beltray and to joe mauer 
And on his, I believe, sixth year on the ballot, uh, Todd Helton reaching the Hall of Fame as well. Uh, so three more legends inducted into the hallowed halls of Cooperstown. Um, we, of course, will talk a little bit about these guys. But we want to look at their uh, the days before, if you will, their own shows before the show. Uh, when those guys were all coming up in the minor leagues, short minor league stints really uh, across the spectrum for those three. Uh, but three guys who got to make a lot of stops, Ben, especially in areas that, you know, are are kind of traditionally very minor league, but a lot of areas that we don't see on the minor league map as well uh, these days anymore. Um, what were some of the fun things that you noticed or, or dug out or learned about the minor league days of Adrian Beltray, Joe Maurer, and Todd Helton. Yeah, well, first of all, our um, our colleague Rob, the Breadman Terranova, has a story on MILB.com digging into the minor league careers of these three new inductees. Um, but this is something I enjoy with the Hall of Fame every year: um, is looking at these guys' minor league careers and looking at where it started and seeing what's changed and what hasn't changed. So, moving in alphabetical order, we'll start with uh, Adrian Beltray. He started off with the Savannah. This is this is in the Dodgers system, the Savannah Sand Nats, who are of course no longer a team. They played at Grayson Stadium, which at this point is over 100 years old. Um, the Sand Nats, Sand Sand Nats, the <laughs> Sand Nats uh, played their final season, and I want to say 2015, and then relocated to Columbia. Sam's got it. Columbia, they became they kept the insect theme and became the Fireflies. They are currently a Royals affiliate. But Beltre started off with Savannah San Nats, Nats, then went to San Bernardino Stampede, which is basically a team that still exists today, albeit with a totally different name, the Inland Empire 66ers. From there on to the Vero Beach Dodgers. Uh, in the Florida State League, uh, that team relocated to Port Charlotte, became the Charlotte Stone Crabs, and the Charlotte Stone Crabs was one of the teams in the FSL that was cut prior to the 21 season. So the Vero Beach Dodgers does not have a franchise still in operation today. I also and remember the Vero Beach Dodgers, their logo involved a lemon. It did. It did. Yeah, it um, like they were also... Well, though that might have been later in the era, it might have been in, in the Dodgers era, but um, they also uh, in their later days were a Rays affiliate and could correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm, I believe that the Vero Beach was actually the last team to have the Devil Rays moniker, even after Tampa Bay switched to just the Rays, I believe. Vero Beach was Devil Rays for a year or two after that, kind of similar to how the, uh, Vermont Expos in Burlington kept the Expos name even when the affiliate Montreal went to uh, Washington uh, and became the Nationals. Man, how do I know this? Interesting, <laughs> yeah. Uh, the as their names, yeah. that is just coming over here. Yeah. Amazing. As their names imply, Vero Beach was affiliated with, this is according to Wikipedia, so you know it's right, uh, affiliated with the Dodgers 1980-2006 and then the Tampa Bay Devil Rays 2007 and 2008. And when the Rays name changed, uh, it was after the 2007 season. So, yeah, in 08, so there you go. Devil Rays. That is pretty cool. There you go. Impress your friends, listeners, with that yeah. statistic. Vero Beach was the final Devil Ray. Uh, and then Beltre played with the San Antonio Missions in the AA Texas League. There is still the San Antonio Missions in the AA Texas League today. It gets a little complicated because that franchise – 
the double A franchise moved. It was replaced by a triple A franchise and it went back to double A. We won't get into those weeds, but um, San Antonio missions and Beltre didn't really play in triple A at least, um, you know, with any regularity. I mean, he basically made uh, his established himself in the majors after that. Although I do believe he played a little bit with uh, Las Vegas, uh, the 51s. Um, Todd Helton started with a team that is a, a model of consistency. The Asheville tourists, uh, been playing uh, with that name over a hundred years in a ballpark that is actually celebrating its centennial McCormick field this season. Um, so he started there. They're still a Rockies affiliate to this day. Then he went to the, in the Eastern league, the, they are now an Astros affiliate. Oh, they're an Astros affiliate. Thank they, they you. They did make that yeah. switch uh, yeah, a couple of years ago, but yeah, they had been a Rockies affiliate from uh, the Rockies inaugural season, 93 to uh, 2021. Good catch on that one. Yes, they're no longer a Rockies affiliate, but still the Asheville Taurus persists. Then the New Haven Ravens, who, of course, are no longer. They relocated out of Connecticut into Manchester, New Hampshire, and became today's New Hampshire Fisher Cats, who were initially going to be named the primaries. Uh, Sam, on the day of the New Hampshire primary, this is a man who thinks ahead. He wore his New Hampshire primaries (laughs) Hat to the office on the day of the New Hampshire primary. So here's the thing. I also have my Iowa caucus hat. Thank you. Yeah. Tyler, you have, you have a very similar New Hampshire primaries hat to the one I have uh, because it has Uncle Sam on it. I right. Mean, I, I have to. I have to have, own that. If you are hat. tuned in on the show before the show uh, video clip. You are seeing the New Hampshire primaries. Well, this isn't technically the New Hampshire primaries logo, but this is an alternate the Uncle Sam logo, uh, the original, of course, we've discussed uh, that came out with the elephant and the donkey looking like suspiciously over their shoulders at each other. But yeah, it's Uncle Sam. Right. We have our own Uncle Sam. He's literally an uncle and his name is Sam. One Sam Dykstra. I don't and even a- know if my nephew or nieces understand that reference yet, but they will in time. They're they're all getting into school soon. Um, but yeah, so I also have an Iowa caucuses hat. That I forgot to wear on the day of the Iowa Cup. Like, that hat yeah, is but, good but. once every four years. Yeah. And I missed true. it on the first one. So I was not missing it with New Hampshire. That's like if some team renamed themselves the Leap Years, you would, you know, you'd really be, if you miss that, it's like you, you got to wait that whole calendar four times over to come back around. Uh, the Ride Hawks, also, by the way, the New Haven Raven, we've talked a lot on the, the show before the show about teams who kind of like, you know, youth teams or schools or clubs or whatever, they'll pirate logos from, uh, you know, various teams across the sports spectrum. Uh, when I lived in Australia, uh, helping to launch the Australian Baseball League, uh, the team that was closest, the baseball club that was closest to where I was living was called the Ride Hawks, R-Y-D-E, and they used the old New Haven Ravens logo. So long after the New Haven Ravens ceased to exist, the Ride Hawks uh, were and still are keeping that logo alive. So whoever designed that New Haven Ravens logo, you're still uh, they're still getting some use out of it. You're probably not getting any royalties. And Ravens logos but, have been in the news recently because I don't know if you guys yeah. saw this, but uh, a TV station accidentally confused the Baltimore Ravens with, I believe, a college. Yes. So it looked like Kansas City Chiefs were just playing a random college <laughs> team. Uh, if they want to swap that out and use the New Haven Ravens and just, you know, get all of us in our nostalgic feels, that would be also amazing if they want. It was like a very random college, too. It was the uh, the Northwest Ravens, uh, who I don't even know what school this is. Olathe Northwest. Oh, it's a high school uh, just outside of Kansas City. 
Well, congrats to them for getting in the yeah. AFC Championship. That's a big accomplishment for. That's, a, that's uh, pretty big. I would be very Northwest scared of facing Patrick Mahomes, but you know, you go get him, kids. Anyway, yeah, I mean, sorry, yeah, anyway, this hey, has been a very big diver. Hey, tangents abound. I mean, yeah, the Baltimore Ravens obviously are named as such because of uh, Baltimore's connection to Edgar Allan Poe. I don't know why the New Haven Ravens were named as such, except for the fact that Haven and Raven rhyme, and maybe that's really all he needed. So let's just go with that. But the New, ha- New Haven Ravens, now the Fisher Cats. Uh, and then Todd Helton played for the Colorado Springs Sky Sox, a uh, longtime AAA Rockies affiliate. Now, Colorado Springs Sky Sox played their final season in 2018, I want to say, and then relocated to San Antonio for a AAA version of the missions. I was kind of alluding to that earlier. And Colorado Springs became the home of a Pioneer League team that still exists today, even though the Pioneer League team, Pioneer League is now independent. Um the Rocky Mountain vibes. But Todd Hilt- Helton was there in the uh, AAA days with the Sky Sox. And then finally, we have Joe Maurer, a man who is, I believe, only 40 years old and somehow in the Hall of Fame. I somehow, um, Joe Maurer making the Hall of Fame has made me feel older than like almost anybody else making the Hall. Like my childhood hero, Larry Walker, made the Hall of Fame. But I was like, yeah, his career ended a long time ago. He deserves that. Joe Maurer, to me, is still supposed to be like 24 and be like the phenom overtaking Major League Baseball. How is he not only retired, but he's been retired long enough that now he is in the Hall of Fame? That's not supposed to happen. Joe Maurer's not that old. Well, to put it into additional context, uh, the MLB Pipeline Top 50 back then started in 2004. The first number one overall prospect ranked by MLB Pipeline oh, was Joe Maurer. Man. So, you know, we're getting that. to that time now where prospects who not necessarily we covered, but have been covered by our outlet are now ma- making Cooperstown. Oh, yeah. Wow. I mean, I, I was talking to Sam about this earlier. I mean, I knew Beltre was going to get elected, uh, you know, beforehand. You know, I'm just that into <laughs> just that into ben, ben had the hot take that <laughs> yeah. Adrian Beltre was getting yeah. in on the first ballot. But so I looked him up and I was like, oh man, Beltre is younger than I am by hardly much at all. Like we would have been in the same high school class if we went to high school together, which I don't believe we did. But <laughs> I feel like you would have remembered that. <laughs> Wait, this is Adrian Beltre from yeah. high school? Yeah, Adrian Beltre? No, I didn't know Wait he went minute. to Wissahickon. <laughs> But so I already was prepared. Like, this is it, man. Like, you're going to have a Hall of Famer younger than you. You know, I'm still getting over the fact that there's no players older than me in the majors. Uh, Fernando Rodney was the last one who may still come back. He one could. Day. He could still make it back. He's uh, but now there's Hall of Famers younger than me. And then when Maurer got in, I belatedly was like, oh, now it's just all over. I mean, I have a younger brother who's older than Joe Maurer. I mean, this is now it's just it's just all over right now. Like, I don't know what to compare myself to like athletically, you know, for with people my age athletically, where I still feel like I have even a pinky toe in the waters where I can say like, yeah, that guy's still doing it. But here I am on a podcast talking about minor league baseball, which is the next best, best thing really. Um, uh, I was, wait, we have to school. get to Mauer, but Bauer. Oh yeah. Yes, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mauer, he started in the Appy league, the longtime Minnesota twins affiliate, the Elizabethton twins. Uh, I've got to visit them once in 2016, real small town atmosphere. I remember it was a game where it was just like free admission day. 
Like I just walked in and I was like, is this like, is there no one? And it was like, oh yeah, it was just a free game. Um, so that team, you know, the Appy League, like the Pioneer League is no longer affiliated, of course. Uh, but Elizabethton still has a team called the River Riders. And I wish I could remember the name of that river, but it runs right beyond the ballpark. It's a really pleasant scene. Uh, he then went to the Quad Cities River Bandits, still holding it down in the Midwest League. Um they were called the River Bandits when he played there, too, in 2003 or so. Uh, and then after that, they had their kind of short-lived and oft-criticized swing of the Quad Cities era, um, referencing the area's you know jazz history. But then they went back to the River Bandits. Which I'll uh, always identify with that movie, Sugar. You remember that yes. movie, Sugar? Yes. Yeah, I, I'll always, I, the swing of the Quad Cities, that was his team. And it's so weird to look back at like, oh, that had to happen in that very small window in Quad Cities baseball history that he would have played for the swing. Yeah, the movie Sugar had uh, Burlington Bees, then Burlington Bees broadcaster Randy uh, Weeho. Ah, man, I'm blanking on how to say his name. Yeah. Wayhofer. Wayhofer? Wayhofer? Yeah. He, yeah. he still works for the uh, Iowa Cubs, although he's no, no longer a broadcaster, but he was in that movie. He has his own IMDB page based on the movie uh, Sugar, which tracks a young uh, Dominican player's uh, minor league journey and you know the challenges that arise for him just adjusting to a new country. I haven't seen it for a long time. Same. Anyway, I remember it was very good. It was it was a good film. Then the New Britain Rock Cats, another defunct team. They, of course, after the 2015 season, uh, stopped being the Rock Cats, moved to Hartford, and became the Yard Goats. Um, they were obviously a Twins affiliate at the time in New Britain, and Hartford is now Colorado Rockies. In an alternate universe, Todd Helton could have played there. Who knows? And also, I guess I'm not doing this in order of level play, but maybe he didn't. Maybe Maurer himself didn't play in the exact right order, but uh, he played for the Fort Myers Miracle who are now the Mighty Muscles, but otherwise still a Twins affiliate in the Florida State League. Um, and I believe, I should have looked this up, I believe Joe Maurer's brother like managed uh, the Fort Myers team. That's yeah. what I was going to say. I think it was like a rehab appearance. Yeah. So his brother was the manager of the team, and they sent him there because, you know, the spring training facility is there. It was easy to rehab in Fort Myers and just play for the team that was right there but his brother happened to be his manager. So there's a pretty cool picture. I think we have up on MILD social media of the two of them doing a press conference uh, and how weird that must be. I, I, I think it's his older brother. So like, at least it's easier to listen to your older brother. I don't know what that damn dynamic is like though. I feel like if yeah, you're the manager in that circumstance and you're the older brother, you just got to ride that dude. Like he pops out or whatever. So you can just like blow him up in the dugout. Like if you're the older brother, I don't care if it's a rehab assignment or not. No, I bench just, him. Be like, I yeah. don't care if it's a rehab assignment. <laughs> and I don't care if you were only supposed to get two at-bats and that was your second at-bat. You're on the bench now. You're out. You're out of this game. Um, well, it's it's pretty – it's always great looking back on, you know, these individual journeys for all these guys as they make their climb uh, to the big leagues. And especially, yeah, I mean, seeing all of these different areas and these different teams and teams that have stayed in the same location but have changed names and all that. I mean, minor league history constantly evolving and uh, some very cool stuff in those careers. Did we miss anybody on uh, on Joe Maurer's stops? I don't believe so. I don't have that up with me right now, though. There's not a yeah. There's not a Triple A club on there. Yeah, I um, believe he was one of those dudes who just made that jump. Uh, and well, I mean, that's the thing, right? Is we said the same thing about Adrian Beltre, and I right? I think this comes up a lot when we talk about Hall of Famers. Like they're always incredibly talented for good reason. Sometimes you have guys who are like late bloomers, like Randy Johnson or or somebody like that. Um, but 
yeah, a lot of these guys, you know, they were good early on and they got righted very aggressively through the minors. Um, Joe Maurer did um, play a very, very, very brief stint uh, with AAA Rochester in 2004, his Major League debut season. He debuted on April 5th of 04 uh, at 20 years old and, yeah, played five games uh, with Rochester that year. So not not a lot to to write about his Rochester time, but, um, man, 20 – you want to know the Twins order that day? Shannon Stewart led off. Remember Shannon Stewart? He was in left field. Then Luis Rivas was in second base. Doug Mentkevich at first. Corey Koski at third. Torrey Hunter in center. Jock Jones in right. Matt LeCroy, a minor league manager of, of days current, was the designated hitter. Joe Maurer hit eighth. And Christian Guzman was the shortstop batting ninth. Uh, pretty amazing. Joe Maurer went two for three in his debut. Um, Who was the starting pitcher? Starting pitcher that day was Brad Radke. I was going to say it had to be Brad Radke because I feel like Brad Radke made 50 starts for the twins. I'm sorry. Every time you looked up the twins in the early two thousands, Brad Radke was on the mound. Brad Radke was uh, a lifelong twin. He debuted with the twins in 95. He retired in 2006, never played for another team. But what I remember about Brad Radke, I'm pretty sure that this is correct. Brad Radke was actually, I don't know if the timeline adds up here. There was a game called World Series Baseball for the Sega Genesis, uh, and I'm pretty sure that Brad Radke was the guy who was featured in that commercial. And it was like the type of thing where I'm like, how did you even? Ah, it was Brad Radke. Fantastic. And apparently I watched it 14 years ago, um, (laughs) according to my YouTube history. But uh, Brad Radke, I don't know how you agree to do this commercial. The commercial was Brad Radke literally giving up a conga line of Chicago White Sox hitters going around the bases, hitting home runs off of him. because like, wow, World Series baseball was so realistic. How do you sign up for that as a pitcher? Of like, all right, we're going to get you out there on the mound. You're the big leaguer in this ad, and you're just getting tagged all over the place. All these dudes are crushing you. You ready? Go. Action. But that was Lots and lots of Sega cash. I think that's Yeah, I was going to say money talks. Big Sega money. As, yeah, as yeah, many yeah. free Sega Genesis games as you want for the rest of your life. That that was a good investment. Oh, man. He also, in this commercial, is wearing a Twins jersey, but it's blank on the back. Anyway, um, <laughs> neither here nor there, but I might edit part of this commercial uh, into this spot in the podcast. Minnesota Twins' Brad Radke. Last season, he struck out 75 batters, pitched two complete games, and gave up 32 home runs. stats all 28 ballparks sega sports world series baseball 2 authentic is wrigley real is radke um we had a new alternate identity unveiled this week which is one of my favorites in recent memory the somerset patriots friends of the show before the show uh have unveiled an alternate identity that they will suit up as this year the jersey diners and not content with just like one awesome logo they rolled out five or six amazing logos uh tell us about this jersey diners identity yeah you know somerset uh they play the somerset patriots they play in somerset county which is in central new jersey so they are in the center of new jersey the diner capital of the world Uh, There are over 500 diners in New Jersey, and I didn't get into this in my article, but the reason for that is that there were um, several prominent diner manufacturers, you know, the old uh, kind of train car style 
prefab diners, you know, those were made at a on location, like at a factory and then shipped out to whoever wanted the diner. So New Jersey being such proximity to where they were built ended up with a lot of diners. So to this day, there's still a huge diner culture in New Jersey. And uh, the Patriots went all in on this alternate identity. Um, uh, you know, I've, I've been saying this <laughs> since I wrote the article, I probably had more that I could have used in this article and more that I just had to cut out for space considerations. Um, than, than I do with a lot of full-scale rebrands. I mean, there was just so many angles to this. Um, but the primary logo is a coffee cup wearing one of those paper diner hats. Um, and that's just because, you know, the first thing you, you know, what is more synonymous with a diner than coffee? You know, going into a diner and uh, first thing you're asked, cup of coffee. Um, you know, that's how it was put to me by the team, by uh, Hal Hansen team's long-running uh, promotion marketing director. Uh, he used to work for the Blue Claws back in the day, but that's neither here nor there. Um, so they have that. The Jersey Diners word mark is, you know, in neon, you know, like a like a diner sign with the, uh, you know, chrome stainless steel uh, structure behind it, you know, like a typical diner structure. But then beyond that, there's a whole variety of alternate marks um, or ones that they'll incorporate into marketing or, you know, do different things with as, as they go along. Um, a, a coffee pot with a stylized JD for Jersey diners. I initially wrote in the story it just as a, that it's just a J and I was uh, corrected that there's a D in there as well on that coffee pot, a J and a D. There I don't is think I a, realize that either. Now I have to go back yeah, and look at the, it. The more you know, there is a stack of pancakes with a... Uh, baseball shaped slab of butter on top. There is state and eggs, which is a great one when, which these it's a steak and um, eggs platter, but the state is I in the shape. Uh, the steak is in the shape of New Jersey state and eggs. And then one called the happy waitress. And even though, you know, I grew up in close proximity to Jersey and have been to some Jersey diners here and there, I didn't know the, how prominent uh, happy waitresses were at Jersey diners. And I do not mean like cheerful, waitstaff but a sandwich called the happy waitress with just a um, grilled cheese with bacon and tomato and it's called the happy waitress so they do have a happy waitress mark as well uh that has kind of a an outline of a baseball diamond of the base paths on top of the bread so there is a lot going on uh, with this identity they're going to play as the jersey diners uh three times in 2024 they're gonna have blue plate specials at the ballpark including happy waitresses uh as well as disco fries which i definitely liked <laughs> growing up you know disco fries i don't know where they got the name disco fries but they are fries topped with like cheese and gravy and it is a excellent diner snack or meal uh so there'll be that kind of food stuff at the uh, concession stands and uh one thing that they're working on which i think is really cool is that the team is putting together you know a book of new jersey diners where they're getting fans to go to these diners and get like the book stamped and then win a prize at the ballpark for going to these diners and and i like that like on the ground support of diners um you know who have like a lot of businesses maybe have been struggling more in recent years post covid the price of food inflation staffing all those things so uh, i think an initiative that encourages people to really hey don't just celebrate these with a hat or a jersey or just good memories of having gone to a diner you know go to a diner now and uh check it out um which i think is great advice for anybody uh, they also did the unveil at a diner they did at a uh was it the park 22 diner in green 
Brook, New Jersey. Green Brook. I, there, there's another mistake I made. I initially wrote Greenwood in Green Brook, New Jersey. And I do apologize to the people of Green Brook for misidentifying initially their town as Greenwood. But anyway, Jersey Diners, a lot going on and uh, a really sharp look. And I'll expect to see Sam wearing a hat on like, well, guys, didn't you know it's National Diner Day? <laughs> Every day is National <laughs> Diner Day. In the Diner it's Diner National Diner. Black Cup of Coffee Day. It's national. Yeah, I didn't know about the happy waitress. That sounds amazing. I'm going to have to try one of those. It does sound amazing. I really like how much they like dove into these alternate uh, logos. And Ben, I, I've been talking to you about this. Like, They're great as a, their own subset. All I've seen so far with the hats are, are the coffee cup. And the coffee cup's great. I really like the coffee cup. It's a great uh, starter logo. But if they sold a hat with these pancakes... Or this this coffee carafe like that that would sell out quick too. I, I'm hopeful that they're going to incorporate more. Like maybe it's just the start of this this look, and uh, you know you just want to get some stuff out there. But if they were to sell, you know, a steak and eggs T-shirt, I I can imagine they would just be making money hand hand over fist. Yeah, I think they got a lot of directions to go with this, and it'll be interesting to see how they expand it, what what becomes available with uh, on the merch. Um, so we should mention that the logos were designed by Ryan Foos of Fooser Studios. You know, his was a name I'd heard, but then I went to the webpage when I was writing this article. Uh, he has worked with more minor league teams than I'd realized, often on alternate identities, a lot of Copa identities. Um, but, you know, really great work on this one, and um, all these logos really pop. And like I said, there's kind of more going on with this identity uh in alternate than there are with you know some just new primary identities and uh you know we talk about alternate identities all the time on this show but it really varies in terms of the rollout and how much teams seem to put into it i mean there's a lot of work that needs to go in into even the most basic alternate identity in terms of designing it getting it approved getting the merchandise promoting it all that but you know they're not all created equal in terms of uh the level of detail and depth and the uh, jersey diners has a great story behind it what is your guys' go-to diner order? You know, I'm always big on, like, does the diner have its own special combo sort of deal? You know, like, it's always, like, especially out east, it's always, like, the lumberjack. And it's, like, you know, you get two eggs and potatoes and meat and toast and pancakes or biscuits and gravy or French toast or whatever. That's usually my go-to, whatever, whatever that version of that is at a diner. That's my go-to. Yeah, for me, I mean, the answer in more recent years is like a lot of food related things, you know, colored by the whole celiac disease diagnosis There's a lot I have to stay away from. I do miss uh, Reuben sandwiches at a diner quite a bit. Um, but even pre and now post celiac, a lot of times my go to was some variation of like the typical diner breakfast special that is at every diner, like two eggs, home yeah, hash browns or home fries, choice of breakfast meat. Um, which in Jersey can be pork roll. Right. Um, actually, the whole diner's identity is sponsored by uh, Taylor Pork Roll Company, Taylor Ham. Um, but that's that's my go-to. I just say uh, no toast, and you know, cross my fingers on cross contamination and dedicated fryers. I, I, I try not to. I try to put that out of my mind because I still love going to diners. Always have. Um, you know, in high school, I went all the time with my friends and I don't even know if this qualifies as a diner. Cause a lot of the time we just go to Denny's, which is kind of like a diner, but it's not really a diner, but there I would order the Southern slam, which was, uh, you know, biscuits and gravy type things. Um, I was in a band in high school and we did one, you know, kind of rap song as a teenager, teenage band would do. And I have one throwaway line in this rap song that is 
Southern Slam at Denny's cost four dollars nine cents because it had to sense had to rhyme with another word. But like, <laughs> I think like talk about feeling old. I was like, man, I once lived in a world where I was old enough to get in a car and drive to Denny's, but it was so long ago that the Southern Slam was only four dollars and nine cents. Well, they just brought this is very fitting. Denny's is not a sponsor of this podcast. I don't know why I'm even like bringing it, but they just brought back the original Grand Slam. They were running this commercial the other day and it's only $5.99 now. And I was like, yeah, damn, like that doesn't deal. seem like it's gone up that much. I feel like when I was a kid, it was probably like $4.99. Maybe it, it was, was like, $4.09. Yeah. I remember that though being like $2.99. And yeah, like, that could be such yeah. a good deal. But that hey, be. we're yeah. not here to celebrate the chains. We're here to celebrate yeah. your local independent diner. We are, uh, we're in the midst of like a diner crisis in Denver. We've lost like several very incredible old timey Denver diners in recent years, including one that was literally called Denver Diner. Um, but there is a place still out on West Colfax here in Denver. Um, the, I believe it's called the Chuck Wagon Restaurant. And it is a new, I think it's a New Jersey manufactured diner that this guy bought at like a, you know, some sort of foreclosure sale or something in the forties or fifties and had shipped to Denver on a rail car. And he established like an old school East coast diner. And it is, it's fantastic. Sam, what's your go-to? I think I'm, I'm like the Venn diagram between the two of you. Okay. Because I went to a diner yesterday. I was in New Jersey for some work related stuff. That'll be out later what this week. Hat were you wearing? I didn't have a hat. I had to be wearing a suit. I was going to the MLB Network studios. It had to be very professional. Unbelievable. It's a weird mix of feelings for me, having to wear a suit in a diner. That is not the vibe I tend It's to very old-timey. That's like, it was, you know, in some you're ways, going to work yeah. in 1957. Maybe that's the closest yeah. I've ever been to being Frank Sinatra, was going yeah. to a Jersey diner in a suit. But, um, but yeah, so I was in a Jersey diner yesterday, Legends Diner in Secaucus. I got a Reuben sandwich, actually. Oh, good call. I got a corned beef Reuben because it was for lunch. But normally, I'm always seeking out those lumberjack yeah. things that you guys are talking about which i feel like are going away really it used to be you could walk into any diner and there would be that special of like you get pancakes or french toast uh or waffles with two eggs bacon all that kind of stuff and it's just like included yeah and now it's kind of being folded into the egg part of the menu where it's like you can get two eggs and you Not can get okay. pancakes which is an additional four dollars right you gotta add them on bacon, separately an extra four dollars so it ends oh, up being like 18 it. bucks for that meal instead of what used to be a special which was like 12 or 13. If it's on there, I'm ordering it immediately. Um, yesterday's was kind of more of that hodgepodge approach. We need to bring back just putting all the breakfast things. In yeah. Throw everything into that one order. Yeah. It's a diner. I want to gorge myself. I want to be uncomfortably full when I waddle my fat tail out of there. That's what I want to do at a diner, at any diner. Um, all right, Ben, newsletter time. We are in the midst of a transitional period with the newsletter. It's also about uh, if you know and love the Ben's Biz Beat, uh, you have a homework assignment. But it's not a complicated one. It is not. Um, but this is, for those of you who do subscribe to the newsletter, which is one of my favorite things I have going professionally right now, um, we don't have to get into the weeds over all the internal company dynamics over what's happening. Just part of a larger reorganization process. My newsletter will soon migrate to MLB's registration list. So the mailing list that's currently in use will be discontinued. Therefore, if you subscribe to my newsletter, you have to resubscribe to it. This is all laid out in the most recent newsletter that has been sent to those who already subscribe. But you have to go to the new MLB registration page mlb.com slash forms slash milb dash newsletter dash 
registration. It is a pretty simple process. Again, if you subscribe to the newsletter already, the link is right in there. If you don't subscribe to the newsletter, then just go to that website and sign up for it. No better time than now. No better time than now. MLB.com slash form slash MILB dash newsletter dash registration. I know it's a lot to take in. I'm imagining people right now being like, oh, scrambling for a pen and paper. Can't rewind a podcast. What did he say? <laughs> uh, but no, I really do. Um, you know, so it's giving me a little anxiety because I've got a good base of subscribers right now. And, uh, you know, I, I'm every single one of them has to resubscribe and I don't want people to fall through the cracks. And, uh, I will keep harping on this, but give me an email, benjamin.hill at mlb.com. If you have any questions or you just want that URL again, and I will personally walk you through the process. That's the kind of customer service you get here with the Ben's Biz Beat newsletter. Um, and in this uh, most current newsletter, I do have a feature that'll run as a standalone on Friday. You know, not earth shaking or anything, but as we look at another season, the third year in a row in which no new ballparks are opening, I just say, hey, here's the six newest ballparks still. And these are all ballparks that debuted in 2021. So just an overview of the ones that are still the freshest on the scene. If you're looking to visit some new ballparks in 2021 and as we are in 2024. And as we've talked, uh, we don't have to go on a whole nother tangent, but 2025 and beyond will finally see uh, new additions to the landscape. New parks. Pretty crazy that it's been that long. Um, so you can get all of that info, of course, in your latest edition of the Ben's Biz Beat. And uh, make sure to subscribe for the new mailing list for said newsletter. And uh, Ben, you've got our interview segment this week. I do. I interviewed a man by the name of Jim Holland, who, if you do follow minor league baseball or work in minor league baseball circles, is a name you're probably familiar with. He spent 24 seasons as the GM, you know, often a one-man show GM uh, in the Appalachian League, Princeton Rays, Princeton, West Virginia. And he got in touch with me. It was sometimes still during the season and said, hey, I have a book that I've written, you know, self-published. Uh, would you like to check it out? And I said, I'd love to. It's a little busy right now, but I'll check it out in the offseason. I'm a man of my word. I, I read the book. And then in the wake of reading his book, I interviewed him. And you're going to listen to that interview right now, because I do think, um, you know, the Appalachian league, the lowest level of minor league baseball um, at the time it existed, you know, rookie level, uh, small markets. Uh, I think his perspective and his career is an interesting one uh, in terms of what it takes to operate a minor league baseball franchise, you know, at those low levels and something he really emphasizes in the book. And we do in the interview is just how that sort of it's a cliche, but it takes a village. Just how involved local businesses were, local fans, and the ways that people pitched in to make minor league baseball reality all those years that he was at the helm. And he also went on to summer collegiate for a few years after that. But uh, anyhow, Jim Holland, longtime general manager of the Princeton Rays, author of the book, My Fortunate Detour. He took the time to chat with me and we'll hear that interview right now. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Here on the show before the show podcast, I am joined by 
Jim Holland, the now retired but longtime general manager of the Princeton Rays in the Appalachian League. He was there for 24 seasons all the way up through 2015 and then went on to the independent West Virginia minors uh, into 2020. So a long career uh, in West Virginia baseball and particularly the Appy League. And he has a book out, My Fortunate Detour, which uh, – Tells a lot about who he is and the career he had at the lower levels of minor league baseball. Thought it'd be an interesting thing to talk about. So that's what we're going to do. Jim Holland, uh, thanks for being here. Ben, thanks for having me. I'm uh, uh, looking forward to telling my story and we'll maybe swap a few. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So, you know, the reason I we are doing this interview is because you sent me this book and I read it. Uh, my Fortunate Detour. Uh, your fortunate detour being uh, the circumstances that you got you into professional baseball in the first place. If you could just, um, you know, for those who don't know, tell us a little bit about uh, your path to working in uh, minor league baseball. Well, number one, Ben, I'm not the classic example of the kid that goes and gets a sports management degree and pounds the halls at the uh, winter meetings looking for that first job. Uh, I'd already, I had already had an interest in sports. I actually thought I was going to be the next great sports writer and uh, got a degree in mass communications from the University of Charleston, West Virginia. And, you know, I took that liberal arts education and didn't veer toward the sports writing path, but just went out into the world of industrial sales for about eight or nine years. And of course, kind of the giveaway on the story, as you know, there's a picture of a detour sign on the front cover and a baseball hitting it. So, of course, in the late 80s, I made the acquaintance of a man named Bud Bickle. And Bud was the first general manager of the Huntington Cubs, which, you know, operated uh, their first two years was 90 and 91. And I was with him those first two years. Basically what it was, in my industrial sales job, I could uh, travel around, kind of do as I please, so to speak, as long as the work got done. And it's amazing. I would end up in a town where it was a ballgame. Every night I was selling something. What a, what a unique thing. We made the acquaintance of Bud and had known him for a couple of years. And uh, he knew I didn't really care much about it, what I was doing, knew my love of sports. I guess kind of my zeal for it and marketing, whatever he saw in me, that, that's a big whatever there. So finally, they got me on the Huntington Cubs in 1991, just as a part-time guy, just hanging around the ballpark. Then the second year, I went out and sold a bunch of advertising for him. And then less than a year and a half later, after this all started, I was in Princeton, West Virginia, the green as grass GM uh, running a club. Our first five years, my 24 was with Cincinnati. Right. And uh, so, you know, just got in. Uh, I was the first full-time employee that Princeton ever had, and they just turned me loose. And, you know, I've got a lot of fuel in the tank to burn every day and just promoted the fire out of it and turn it into a 24 year career here all because of that one meeting, that fortunate detour. <laughs> I wasn't looking to get into pro ball, but I would go to games and see people, you know, the workers. And I said, man, wonder how you get into this. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, and lo and behold met bud that just that one little chance in my case, I didn't alter the direction to get into baseball. I just kept, you know, traveling my path in life and, by Joe, there's the intersection, the detour, and the rest is history right to where we're sitting here talking today. Yeah. And for those in, who work in minor league baseball, there's, you know, a lot of commonalities from team to team, job to job, 
And yet, there's a big difference between working for the AAA, whatever the team is, Louisville Reds, you know, in a front office staff of dozens and dozens, and being the one full-time employee of an Appy League operation. I mean, there's some major differences. And to me, that's one of the most interesting things about, you know, your career is being that one-man operation and you just have to, so many little things you have to think about all the time, you know, to keep the team going. And something that comes through in the book is just how much buy-in there was from uh, local fan base and uh, local businesses. Um, so what was that like, you know, throughout your career, just always having to be aware all the time of like, maybe this is someone who can help the team in this regard or that regard. It seems like you have to think creatively all the time. Well, you have to because your budget is really small. And, you know, another person that had reviewed the book said, usually when you read an autobiography, it's a me book. And he said, my book is a we book because you have to bring all these people in to create the whole structure. It's like I tell people that, you know, Ben Hill can do task A over here and Johnny Smith can do task B. And you get to how many letters of the alphabet you need and you just dump it all on the table like a jigsaw puzzle and lo and behold, it creates your team icon. And that's, you know, that's the engine you run on. Mm-hmm. And uh, but the only thing I did not do groundskeeping, although obviously I pushed my share of tarps. But other than that, I mean, I did the at our level, I was doing the payroll, paying the bills, uh, marketing. Uh, you know, I ran an intern program, it was very successful. Um, I did it all, every every last thing, other than really the groundskeeping through yeah. the off season, of course. And then during the summer, you know, we'd bring in our quote unquote specialist for scoreboard operators and PA and one field MC and things like that. But uh, no, for about 10 months out of the year, it was just, just me. Yeah. And and your career was obviously up until pretty recently, it's not at all ancient history, but some of the anecdotes in the book um, did strike me about how much things have changed on a variety of levels in recent years. Uh, At one point you were mentioning, you know, all the music played over the PA just being a series of, like essentially mixtape cassettes that you would make. That's exactly right. Because what we had, we had really at that time at Princeton, uh, the stadium that you saw, Ben, when you traveled here was not the original Honeycutt Field. Yeah. The original one was just basically, it was a football stadium, bleacher, that were the, the whole place was wood. And we had a little press box, golly Neds. I'll bet that thing wasn't uh, maybe, maybe about 10 by eight or something like that. And basically, that was just the thing where you laid your microphone down. When the gates opened at six o'clock, you have like, I had six different sides of cassette recorded music. And you know, I always had a Markland or ABCD, so I'd always pick up with the next one. And I just lay the uh, microphone down on, on the desk, turn it on, and, and just go off. And it actually sounded pretty good. <laughs> um, and at that time, like, if we had to do a field presentation, before I got here, they had wired a, a pipe or something down to the bottom of underneath the bleachers, and you had your uh, your socket there where you could plug in the field mic to that. You just drag that cord out to the field with you and do it. And what was funny, there was always a fan sitting underneath there. That was their job. That when it when we got done, I was already uh, concerned with moving on to the next thing. They'd be pulling that cord off the field real fast because they knew you know we was ready for an umpire meeting and a first pitch. So. Uh, yeah, it changed a lot over 24 years. Yeah, it, it really did. Um, and, and, you know, one person who was 
a huge help to the organization uh, throughout those years in Princeton. Uh, you talk about him quite a bit in the book, uh, Tommy Thomason, and he was also the uh, the mascot performer, <clears throat> Roscoe the Rooster. And, you know, I visited Princeton in 2016, uh, the year after you left. Um, but Roscoe the Rooster could talk, and uh, I'd never had a conversation with a mascot before. Um so if you talk about Tommy and Roscoe and, you know, what they meant to the team and, um, you know, everything they did to kind of help uh, entertain the fans. Well, somebody like Tommy is, is like everybody else there. They might have their one defined role, but I mean, Tommy in the off season, we would take him to little league openings. We would take him everywhere. And really the name, we, the, why I came up with the name Roscoe uh, and how Roscoe the Rooster came into being was originally we were a Cincinnati Reds farm club. And of course, we had a mascot in Huntington named Harry Berry, which was a takeoff on Harry Carey, and we were a Cubs affiliate at Huntington. So I wanted to do that right away, Princeton, and not had a mascot. So I went to a costume store and said, what can I find? And there was a rooster. And, of course, then we were at the Reds at the time. Everybody's heard of a red rooster. So um, that's how it got going. And I was originally going to call it Randy the Rooster, but, but the more I thought about it, I said, you know what, I want to – a name that, that stands on its own and defines it. And to, to, to give you an example, I've lived in Princeton now and still live here. Uh, I've lived here 32, 33 years. I've met one person named Roscoe. So then if you hear people talk about Roscoe's in the parade or whatever, uh, you know who they're talking about. But, you know, Tommy's a jewel. He loves the game. He's got a big heart and he loves to entertain. Yeah, and, and one thing I learned when I visited, uh, he would compete in like on the amateur wrestling circuit uh, as Roscoe the Rooster, and uh, that just I thought was such a great little piece of Americana and minor league baseball, uh, the intersection thereof. You do not see many uh, many mascots getting in the ring. And well, yeah, that's a beauty, Ben, because anybody that's listening today, a lot of those you can find on YouTube. And, and I've not thought about that for a while, but I figured later today I'm going to watch one. <laughs> yeah, I remember his signature move was the chicken wing, and one of his arch rivals was the Cuban assassin. Those are the absolutely, <laughs> absolutely the two things I remember about that. Um, a big thing throughout your uh, career, especially uh, in Princeton, um, you know, just so much interaction with um, the players and coaching staff. Um, you know, that still exists to this day, but even more in that era of minor league baseball, just in terms of the amount that you need to coordinate, the amount that you get to know these people. Um, and a lot of that, you know, comes through in the book. Um, one anecdote that stood out to me was it uh, John Stearns when he was managing the team that he stuck around after the season ended to help out in the kitchen of a restaurant that had, that had provided food throughout the season or whatever the case may be. Um, you really get a sense of that small town uh, you know, mentality with, with that kind of thing. But, and to this day, right, you still keep in touch with a lot of players or follow their careers if they're still playing. Um, it must be a lot to keep track of and a, a lot of relationships to maintain. Well, absolutely. And and actually, I talked to players a couple of days ago, 1994, they called me to buy the book. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the funny thing about this, Ben, is, of course, you know, all of my, I did 26 years of Pro Bowl, two at Huntington, 24 at Princeton, and then a four, you know, in summer collegiate. But the 24 years in Princeton, I had 84 players that went on to play in the big leagues. Now, that's not anything, you know, and no arrow being tossed here. But, you know, if I worked 24 years at AAA and sent 84 guys to the big league, that's not a big deal because they're that close to it. But to be in Princeton, West Virginia, have 84 guys circulate, circulate up, 
from this small town to go to the big leagues. It's quite wild. I had actually I jotted the some of this down of those 84 players. I had American League batting champion, American League MVP, a rookie of the year, a Cy Young winner, an all-star game MVP. I've even had an American League manager of the year, Rocco Baldelli, <laughs> who, you know, got the job early and played here in 2000. And it's just mind blowing. Yeah. And I think that's so much where the, so much pride can come from that in a, in a small minor league town like Princeton, knowing that, no matter what these guys go on to, it it, it starts there. Um, remember you in the book, you were writing about uh, a fan who was a teacher. Was it Ann Lambert uh, who like did players laundry and that kind of thing. And I think that kind of thing is now there's a little more systems in place for hopefully that, you know, fans don't have to do players laundry, but it's really remarkable how many people stepped up in so many right. small roles and, and you really make that a yeah, that wasn't like baseball uniforms or anything like that. They would just bring her personal laundry. Right, right, her, right. Her personal laundry. And the funny thing was, she would come in, and um, when she would come in for the game, there was just enough room for her to drive, and everything, it was a four-door car, and everything else was just laundry bags. You couldn't see anything. So she comes, everybody comes out and gets their bag. And then I guess, like, maybe when she leaves after the game, here's other players who didn't get it the, the day before, Coming out with their bags, <laughs> and Anne was bilingual. Also, I don't know if I mentioned that in the book. So that yeah, that did, was yeah. really uh, critical for the Latin players that you know that have she's a contact. And yeah, and of course, you might remember in the book we had a uh, center fielder here named Jason Pridey mm -hmm. who played a couple of years in the big leagues, and he played here for us in two thousand and two, and he bought a just a car, a jalopy or whatever. But he got bought it after he got here. And at the end of the year, he signed the title over to Ann. Yeah, that's that's such a great, great story. Um, yeah, so you were in Princeton for those uh, 24 seasons. And, you know, you mentioned, you know, in the book, like you just knew it was time to leave Princeton or you're just kind of feeling like it, it was running its course. You know, wh why do you think that was that you decided after all those years, you know, to to move on to another team? Well, you know what? That's a tough one. I really don't know. Uh because I thought I would do my whole career here. You know, after I left Huntington, I really liked it. And I think most people here thought I was going to go the whole way. But um, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's just a decision I made. Uh, I can't totally explain. I, I probably had some burnout. I never took days off. I was one of these Joe Gibbs types that slept in the office a lot. And, um, and if anything was, I left. And after about uh, four weeks or five weeks of not doing anything, that, you know, I'm feeling really good. There's something <laughs> to be at these breaks. So, I mean, if I had it to do over again, I would just push a little harder against myself and take some breaks. And maybe that that might have changed. But I did go on and go to summer collegiate ball full-time uh, with the West Virginia Miners of the Prospect League and did that for four years. And I had told myself originally I was going to leave after the 19th season. I mean, I told myself that a long time ago. Uh, my first year was 90 in Huntington, and of course, 19 would have been 30 seasons. Uh, and I turned 62 in November of 19. Well, I'd already put in the 19th season the summer before. And of course, obviously, I was already selling to prepare for 20. So I set my new goal that I would retire in August of 20. And then, of course, COVID stepped in and took care of that. And I retired in May of 20 instead of uh, in, uh, August of 20. So... Uh, great career, no regrets, not at all. 
Yeah, but then moving to the world of summer collegiate, which is obviously a, a different operating model in a lot of respects. You know, what were things you learned in that world or or whose differences you noticed uh, were the most profound compared to the affiliated world? Well, I, I, I was with a good operation and West Virginia Miners has, has a great stadium. It seats uh, about 2,800, completely turf, modern. It was just built in 2010. So I had a good, <clears throat> excuse me, I had a good time there. I think the big difference with summer collegiate, at least at that level, the tail kind of wags the dog. Because you know, unlike affiliated ball where the players all have this, they all come to the top of this pyramid. This is the owner up here. Whereas in, in you know, the prospect league, things look great one night when you leave and you come back the next day and a couple of lockers are empty. And, you know, they just do things like decide to go to the beach or something like that. It's just very – and it's no indictment on the minors or, or anybody in the league. It's just that the players – more so can do what they want. Yeah, that's a big one. You're not going to see that kind of thing happen in uh, in the affiliated world. Um, not, not, not that ends well. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, not that ends well, exactly. It might happen, but it's not going to end well. Um, well, you definitely get the impression throughout the book that, you know, you are, uh, you call yourself a workaholic a lot and kind of it, it was clear you're going to stay active in retirement. And, you know, this book is, I'm sure an example of that, of just needing a project and, and needing something to do. Um, what has been, uh, you know, the, the reaction to the book, you know, so far, you know, self-published, you know, we mentioned before I started recording that you kind of relate to the, um, in promoting and selling this book, the same way, the same approach you took as a GM, you kind of got to do everything your, yourself, take a do it yourself approach. Uh, so what's it been like putting it together and then, uh, you know, getting the reaction to it? Well, number one, of course, you know, I was a journalism grad, you know, print. So the written word's not a problem for me. But just some of the other things about the book business, uh, uh, really, it's just uh, the school of hard knocks as you go along the way. But finally, I just got to the point. I started, I retired in May of 20. And from May of 20 to May of 21, I did nothing but just jot down notes. That's mm -hmm. all I did, chronologically. And... Um, May of 21, I started writing. By about April of 22, I was ready. And I was waiting to try to, to master the Amazon process. And it's not like I had a publisher or an agent or somebody doing it for me. And uh, finally, my head got tired of beating it against the wall. And I said, I've got something to say. And I, I just want people to enjoy the book. It's not, you know, it has to be at the bestseller list or anything like this, although it has continued to move well over 14 months. So I uh, finally released it in November of 12 of uh, 2022. And in the first five days, we had shipped orders into 13 states. It caught on that quick and very strong. And then finally, I found somebody that's uh, just uh, a hidden under the covers book bookworm some, somewhere that knew how to do the Amazon process. And then you know, when we added the uh, the Kindle book process where it's available on Amazon via Kindle and be able to order the Perfect Bound paperback, maybe people that did not want to order it directly from me, all of a sudden, bam, now there it is. Mm -hmm. And uh, and it's, it's done well and it's performed pretty steady all the way through. So that's continued to supplement me being the uh, um, bull in the china shop uh, marketer. And it's, it's it's still still doing well. It's it's got a good story to tell. It is not a statistical manual, as you know. Uh, we just want to paint the picture of small town America, like I said how everybody fits in. Um, 
I categorize it, Ben, as maybe the first 40, 50 pages, something like that. Probably not that many. Probably the first 30. It's just an autobiography of me kind of growing up. You get the feel for me, what I'm about, how I got into this. Then the guts of the book in the middle is my 30-year first-person version of my 30 years in baseball. Then you uh, sandwich it on the other end with going kind of back autobiography, autobiography. Well, that's a tough word, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> autobiographical um, to, you know, where I'm at today and still stay in touch with the game a little bit through various ways. And uh, that's a story to tell. I thought people would enjoy it. And I'm always looking for mediums to get the word out more. Uh, I think we've had orders from, uh, I think we're up to close to 30 states now. So it's out and about and it's done well, still here. And like any uh, independent author, you always have books in your car. You're ready when you <laughs> run into somebody. So yeah, it's still doing quite nicely. I, I would invite people to read it. it it's a it's a very good read. Uh, honestly, it's not a short book. It's about 360 pages, somewhere in that neighborhood, but nobody tells you you have to read it all in the same day. No, and you definitely, definitely do not. And as someone who, you know, clearly stayed in touch with a lot of people through the years, or at least tried to follow their careers whenever possible, you know, has writing this book or the reaction to the book resulted in, uh, you know, people who you hadn't talked to for a long time, getting back in touch and that kind of thing. Absolutely. I mean, ab absolutely. There's just been so many people, uh, you know, we kind of marketed right out of the gate to every player that's ever played in Princeton. And the response was, was great. We had some that bought five at a, at a clip. Hey, I don't have any problem with that. And, uh, and, you know, just got to talk to different people, catch up with their lives. The guy I talked to two nights ago, uh, I had not seen him since 04. He was a member of our 94 championship team. And you might remember in the book, we did a 10 year reunion for them in 2004. And that's, uh, that was the first time I talked to him in exactly 30 years. He had heard about the book and wanted one. So yeah, but, but from all, whether uh, several people in Tampa Bay's front office have it, uh, players, people in the community here that followed the team, people from my hometown. Um, I think it's just a well book that just reaches out to so many different directions that I don't care who you are. There's probably a link in here for you that it would you know, link it to you, that you would find it enjoyable. Yeah, absolutely. And um you, know, you mentioned you know still trying to stay involved in the game of baseball or you know pay attention in certain ways. Um, you know we are it is a you know bittersweet or kind of sad moment uh, for Princeton's baseball history in that um, you know the Appy League became uh, summer collegiate in 2021 and uh, Princeton remained in the league as the Whistle Pigs, but um, now heading into this coming season. Uh, they've withdrawn from the league. I think the ballpark upgrades that were required were just uh, too expensive, you know, for the town's budget. Um, you know, what is your, that must be bittersweet to you or to go into this summer of 2024, you know, for the first time in decades w without, uh, you know, local baseball in Princeton, you know, what's your take on that situation? Well, you know, the one irony of it, they're replaced by Huntington. Of course, Huntington's where I started yeah. and they came back in the league and Princeton's leaving. Uh, it is unfortunate. It is a a nice facility in a lot of in a lot of ways, and of course, by the old Happy League standards, that was pretty much that was a pretty good showpiece there. Mm -hmm. But uh, they just uh, and I can't speak for somebody. I can just repeat what I've read. Uh, just that they felt that um, 
just the continuing demands were just not uh, aligned with what they had envisioned doing. And some of the major uh, donators just decided they would like to uh, uh, repurpose the, the money, uh, their, their annual donations to benefit the town in another direction. And of course, living in Princeton, that's not at all bad. Knowing that it's going to continue to stay and recirculate into other things in the town that will benefit the town, that's that's not so bad. Uh, of course, we have Bluefield just down the road. They're still very active. Um, I know they're hoping to capitalize and get some folks from Princeton. They'll go over there, and and they're doing some great things over there to, to bump them up as well. For me, to watch affiliated ball, my closest affiliate now is Salem, Virginia. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, if I get in the ballpark, that would be it. Of course, I have uh, former interns that work with some MILB clubs um, that I would like to see. Probably people you've crossed paths with that are still active. But um, and then my son's brother-in-law plays in the Frontier League for the uh, Windy City Thunderbolts. So uh, this will be his second year there. So uh, we'll find some baseball somewhere. Yeah, no doubt about that. There's, there's always if you're looking for it, there's there's always baseball, and that's obviously something you've done. Uh, your whole life. Well, once again, the book is My Fortunate Detour uh, by Jim Holland. Um, do you have any, uh, before we wrap this up, is there anywhere in, in terms of people who might want to buy the book, is there any specific recommendation for the best place to go? Would it be Amazon at this point? Or At this point, if you're, you know, if you are uh, non-local, uh, so to speak, uh, yeah, you would, you would, it's available on Amazon either as a Kindle book or a, uh, or a perfect bound paperback. Of course, you know, anybody that would want to uh, contact me directly, you can find me on Facebook and, or, you know, you can call me 304-920-7100. Like I said, you'll talk to the author direct. Nobody's <laughs> going to answer for me and send it to you. Um, and and then of course, people in West Virginia, they know where some of the, where the bookstores are. There's uh, two bookstores in this area and then two in the Charleston area. And I would like to mention, though, Ben, if I could, uh, is, you know, where we were a a training ground for interns. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would recommend just my my thing with interns. If you can start with a small ball club like this, you're exposed to so many more different directions of things you can do. In other words, what I tried to do was make it. uh, I used the word, of course, we couldn't keep them. We could train them. I, I use the word hireable. I want to make you that when you go to that next ball club after spending a year with us, you know so many different things. They can't help but hire you because that's just less stuff that they have to show you how to do. Yeah, that, that's, that's a point. The, that's a point I agree with. And while I never worked in a minor league front office, you know, people have reached out to me through the years saying, you know, how can I get into the world of minor league baseball or what's the best approach? And I think what you said hits the nail on the head. The, the smaller the team, the more experience you can get. And uh, I think ultimately the most beneficial experience in terms of then taking that experience into a uh, into your next step in your career, for sure. Actually, my fingerprint right now is probably best, uh, Ben, with the Altoona curve. Mm-hmm. Both, both the general manager and the assistant general manager Right now with the Altoona, Altoona Curve, Nate Bowen and Michelle Gravert both started here in Princeton. Yeah, well, well, there you go. I mean, I'm sure you can look all over the baseball world in terms of former 
uh, players, uh, staff members, uh, people who were in the same league at the same time. And it's, it's just the nationwide network and one of the great things about working in, in minor league baseball. Well, if you remember that I had a title explaining our intern program and how it worked. And if you remember the title of that chapter was the team that I coach. Yeah, exactly. And obviously I'm not a coach, not the playing term, but I would like to think that people see the, uh, the title of that chapter, that would be intriguing enough. You would want to open that up. And of course, you know, the late Patrick day, who was just a stalwart in minor league baseball. And he started with me and uh, the director of, uh, Marketing and the AGM at Delmarva right now is a guy named Ben Viarola. Mm-hmm. And Ben started with me. He interned with me with the minors for two years in the collegiate league. And he is a very, um, he has a versatile set of tools. He, I, I would run him with anybody I've had here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as you said, you, yeah, you've got fingerprints still uh, all, all over the game. Um, so, yeah. I've got again. one with you in New York there, too. Megan <laughs> Madsen. I don't know if you know Megan or not, I think she's still with MLB. Um, she works in New York, I believe. Yeah, I'm not sure if I uh, I know her, but uh, yeah, I know a lot of these people for sure. And a lot of people, great people throughout the years have gotten their start in Princeton and in the Appy League in general. Um, yeah, so you can read all about it in My Fortunate Detour. And Jim, appreciate you taking the time uh, to speak with me here on the show before the show podcast. Well, I had a great time, Ben, and it's an honor to... Uh, I have an opportunity to be on your podcast. Like I said, I was uh, just leafing around the other day, and all of a sudden, here's the uh, Talking Brewster column. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I yeah, just that was... up, and uh, Next stop for me will be the computer, the YouTube of Roscoe, and the Cupid Assassin. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Always got to follow these trails wherever they may lead. Uh, so, yeah, thanks again, Jim. It was great talking to you. Thank you, Ben. Have a great day. You too. Big thanks to Jim Holland and, uh, of course, for Benjamin Hill for capturing that conversation. Um, really cool stuff from a, uh, a longtime minor leaguer in uh, a scope of the minor leagues that now is, you know, a much different world in that short season um, side of uh, of the baseball landscape. And uh, with that, we'll continue along on this week's episode of the show before the show as uh, we talk a little on-field stuff Top prospect lists continue to roll out uh, from our very own Sam Dykstra at all uh, at MLB Pipeline. And uh, Sam, the top 100 list, uh, by the time people hear this, will be out. But since it is not out, we're not going to talk about it. We're going to save it for next week. Um, it, it depends on when people are listening to this. Wow, well, like, that's, true. that's true. We're going to put out the episode on Friday like we always do. Um, but the top 100 will be going live after the Pipeline Prospects show on MLB Network at 7 p.m. Eastern time on Friday. So if you're listening to this before that, we're not going to spoil anything. If you're listening to this after that, go check out the Top 100. It is available for you to peruse, and we will get to it next week. We'll break it down in full. Uh, that'll be a lot of fun to talk about because it's 100 guys to talk about. I mean, there's like a, we're not going to go 100. To, we're going to go one by one through each of them. Oh, God. That would... Uh, that would be interesting. Like if I could do one minute on each guy, that wouldn't be a terribly long podcast, but it might get boring. Um, but no, there'll be tons to get into next week. But, you know, depends on when you listen to this. If you're listening to this at 6.50 Eastern time on Friday, no spoilers. Wait Just the like extra 10 minutes. Getting ready for your night out with your friends, nerding out on prospect updates. That's Those are our kinds of people, to be honest. I mean, the show before the show, when you think about it, is pregame programming. That is true. That is true. Um, well, 
Let's get into uh, some of the things that we can discuss ahead of the top 100 unveil. And uh, among those things are the top 10 uh, positional rankings and a couple of really stacked categories, Sam, shortstops and outfielders, always two very exciting groups. But of course, uh, with the talent that is currently at the top end of the top 100, um, some really, really impressive future major league stars. Give us some of the standout themes from this shortstop and outfield categories. Yeah, I mean, these are always going to be two of the most loaded groups no matter what, right? Because you're going to put typically your most athletic players at shortstop. There's a lot of range there. There's an arm that you need at that position. Uh, and teams like to keep their guys at shortstop for as long as possible. Not everybody on our top 10 shortstop list might be a future shortstop. Some of these guys might be moving on, including the guy at number one who is so good. It doesn't matter. If he's playing short or second base, he's going to be one of the best talents in all of Major League Baseball. I'll get to his name in a second. But outfield, same same thing, right? Like, if you're throwing left-handed, you're either playing first base or you're going to the outfield. That's just the way that the game has gone. Uh, I used to love playing video games where I would move left-handers to third base just to see how it looked. doesn't work that way. Uh, but if you're super athletic, you're sticking in center field for a long time. And that's what you're seeing on our outfield list is a lot of guys who could play center field or if they have to move to a quarter, they're going to be supremely athletic corner outfielders. Um, so we'll start with the shortstop group. No surprise here. Number one is the guy who ended last year as our number one overall prospect. That's Jackson Holiday of the Baltimore Orioles. You might remember last year, Gunnar Henderson uh, was their top prospect. He ended up winning AL Rookie of the Year. Jackson Holiday has climbed even quicker through the minors, playing at four different levels. Got used to every level pretty quickly. Single A, high A, hit immediately. Double A, I think there was a little bit of transition time. Triple A, a little bit of transition time. But he showed an incredible ability to adjust. It's a plus-plus hit tool pretty easily. He's talked about trying to add strength this offseason. He knows that's the next part of his game that needs to be locked in. If that comes, we're talking about plus power on top of that. And I think he moves decently well at shortstop. He could be a really, really good second baseman. And if the Orioles decide to do that because they have Gunnar Henderson and Henderson may lock in at short, or they have Joey Ortiz, who's like not on the shortstop list, but spoiler alert, will be in the top 100. He's a really good defensive shortstop. They have options at all these spots. Jackson Holiday might be moving over to second. But if you're looking at a guy who could be hitting someday 320 with 30 homers, that's insanely good. Like, I know we don't use average that much anymore, but, like, his bat to ball is really good. His ability to uh, protect the plate is special. He just has all the markers. And because he's been around the game, this guy doesn't get flustered either. I mean, he's been around Major League Clubhouses. Tyler, you know this because, you know, Matt Holiday playing in Denver – Jackson Holiday has been in a major league clubhouse forever. There's nothing in, in that room that's like, oh, this is too big for me. This moment is too big. He knows what's coming. Uh, his dad has done a really good job of letting him know what's coming and, and preparing him for that. And it showed last year. Really excited to see what he can do. I think the question of the spring, one of the questions of the spring, does Jackson Holiday open in Baltimore? Um, he doesn't have major league experience like Gunnar Henderson did a year ago. And Gunnar Henderson obviously opened up on the major league roster, but the prospect promotion incentives, which say if a guy's on the opening day roster is a consensus top 100 prospects, which Jackson holiday will be and wins rookie of the year, you get an extra draft pick. Listen, they, they know how aggressive they can get with this guy. Uh, and they've continually done that. The Orioles are in win now mode. If you think he's your 
one of your four best infielders, start him an opening day. And you have the upside of like getting another draft pick out of that and keeping the rebuilds over in Baltimore, but like keeping more draft picks coming is going to be a big part of their sustained success. So going to be an interesting conversation with Jackson Holiday. We have number two is Colson Montgomery, somebody who's drawn Corey Seager comparisons. It's a heck of a time to get Corey Seager comparisons coming off the Rangers World Series win. He's six foot three, left-handed slugger, obviously throws with the right hand, but has size at shortstop. May never be like truly special defensively there, but he hits the ball supremely hard. We saw it last year in the Arizona Fall League. He could be above average uh, at short as well. We'll we'll see how things kind of shake out there, but he's going to be a big part of what they're trying to build on the south side because they're clearly rebuilding right now, and they need somebody like Colson Montgomery to come through. Battled some oblique and back injuries last year, uh, but if he's healthy this year, I could see him sprinting towards Chicago. Jordan Lawler at three, somebody who does have major league experience, was on Arizona's uh, postseason roster throughout last fall. He was even still there for the World Series. Uh, speaking to some Arizona folks, it's going to be really interesting to see how that works out for him positionally because I do think he's a really, really good shortstop and there is more power coming out of him. They have Geraldo Perdomo, who was pretty good last year. Lawler has a higher ceiling. How do they decide how that's going to kind of shake out is going to be interesting. Uh, number four is Jackson Merrill. Potential plus-plus hit tool for Merrill. Doesn't strike out a ton. Um, I think there's more power coming. They've started to move him around a little bit too with some time left, uh, some time even at first base. He's staring down Xander Bogarts's shadow in San Diego, but I think the hit tool is going to move him pretty quickly. He got humbled at the beginning of last year, and I think that's kind of the lump he needed to reach his ceiling. He knows that he's not going to just be able to swing everywhere uh, and trust his bat to ball. There, there needs to be some adjustments made, and he did make them at high A and double A last year. So we'll see how aggressive the Padres get with him in year uh, in this year, potentially starting out at triple A El Paso or back down to double A. Uh, and finally, number five for the shortstop is Marcelo Meyer of the Boston Red Sox. One of the dra best draft picks uh, the Red Sox have made in recent years. But if you look at his performance last year, wasn't it particularly special? You know, fourth overall pick in 2021, reached double A, but was, seemed to be dealing with some shoulder injuries. He's talked about being healthy this offseason. So we're kind of holding on Marcelo Meyer. Like there's reasons to drop him if you just look at the performance. But if he wasn't fully healthy, we haven't seen the best of Marcelo Meyer yet. I think that's coming in 2024. And the Red Sox, you know, for all the front office changes they've made, maybe there was some talk about like, all right, they're going to start dealing from their positional prospect depth to try to build something at the major league level. That hasn't happened. I think they want to hold on to Marcelo Meyer, Kyle Teal, Roman Anthony, the foundation that they're building there on the farm. Some of those guys could reach the majors this year, particularly Anthony and Meyer, but Teal has been pushed aggressively too. We have to see what he's like healthy, but we're kind of holding the line on Marcelo Meyer. So those are the top five shortstop prospects so far. You can check out the full list uh, at MLB.com slash prospects slash 2024 slash SS. See where these guys figure into the top 100 uh, when that comes out on Friday. All right. Now on the uh, outfielder side, there are some names that really it feels like we've been talking about for a long time, but they're still young, uh, which is pretty amazing. And uh, of course, the guy who we are going to begin and end this conversation with is Jackson Churio. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's interesting because you look at like who else is on this list, right? And I'll spoil that real quick. Evan Carter is number two. Wyatt Langford is number three. Dylan Cruz are number four. In many other years, any of those three guys are the number one outfield prospect. Um, but Jackson Churio, we've talked about this a lot, was a 2040 player in 2023, despite going to double A for his age 19 season. Like he was pushed aggressively in 2022. They moved him to double A for virtually all of 2023. Got a late cup of coffee with AAA Nashville. Signed that eight-year, $82 million contract extension because the Brewers believe he could be a future cornerstone for them and might be, honestly, a present cornerstone. Like that 2040 season, it's one of, I believe, five since 1958. The last guy to do it was Ronald Acuna Jr. in 2017. This is not something that happens very often. It's one of five by a teenager, I should say, in the minor leagues, not just generally, but by a teenager. So to be this good, this young, to be on this track already, and he's a plus-plus runner. The power is certainly playing. Uh, he can cover the gaps. There, you know, talking to Brewers people, there's some questions about like him going back to a wall. Sometimes he seems a little bit timid on that. That's going to come. He was actually signed as a shortstop, so he's still kind of learning outfield. But he's going to be a plus defender too. Like the, all the pieces are there for like we talk about five tool talent. This guy has the, maybe the the biggest question is his arm, but even that was like getting better last year. And the Brewers have done a pretty good job of like not trying to work him out too much because he's dealt with elbow issues earlier in his career. It can still be something he uses, uh, whether it's in center. They even tried him out a little bit in right field. But I fully expect Jackson Churio, which is this is crazy to say because he's going to be 20 on opening day, to be Milwaukee's starting center fielder in the major leagues on opening day. Um, so that's kind of crazy just to tell you the talent level of Jackson Churio and how far advanced he is for his age. But I think if you are kind of somebody who only pays attention to the major leagues and you see Evan Carter batting three-hole uh, for the Rangers – in their World Series clincher against yeah, the Arizona pretty Diamondbacks. Amazing. Pretty good. Um, and you think, so this guy already won a World Series, uh, was batting above 300 in the majors, was really good defensively in left field, probably a future center fielder. He's not the number one prospect in the outfield. How? You know, the guy does as good a job as anybody in baseball, maybe, at, like, not chasing. And that's really, really special. The power is going to be closer to average. Um, and that's maybe the biggest question with Evan Carter, but still, man, he's, you look at like, we were talking about Gunnar Henderson earlier. He was the runaway AL rookie of the year favorite. I think that has to be Evan Carter right now, just because of that major league experience. He didn't look overshadowed in the playoffs by any means. That's why Bruce Bochy was trusting him in the heart of the order. Uh, so if you've already won a world series playing in April, May, and June, like that's not going to be something that's going to phase Evan Carter. He hasn't really taken his lumps yet in the majors, and he's going to have to adjust because pitchers are going to attack him differently. They know they can't go outside the zone with him. Uh, so what what is he going to do to adjust? That's the next thing. But all the pieces are there um, for him to be you know, really special in what is still technically his rookie season. But if you're asking me who has a higher ceiling, I think that's actually Wyatt Langford, who's one spot below Carter. This was something we debated a lot. Uh, behind the scenes of like, who do you put ahead, Langford or Carter? Went with the guy who already has the World Series title on his resume. But if you told me Langford's a better prospect right now, I would believe you and I would probably agree with you. Wyatt Langford climbed up to AAA last year after being the fourth overall pick in the draft. Showed a really special bat at Florida before that, um, especially when it comes to impact. But his swing decisions 
at double A, at triple A were really, really good. And, you know, the more advanced pitching he went up against, his approach didn't change. The guy just is seeking out hitting the ball as hard as possible and does an incredible job of that. If you want to look at some things to kind of nitpick, maybe he's not a center fielder like Carter is. He's not as fast as Carter is, but like the bat is really, really special. And if I'm the Rangers, I'm considering him for opening day. Like I, I, I like Leody Tavares and his defense, and I think he was close to a league average bat. But you put Evan Carter in center, Wyatt Langford in left. Wyatt Langford could be like a 110 to 120 WRC plus guy this year, be a better bat than Leody Tavares. I think about it, and then I would love to see that rookie of the year race between those two. Uh, four and five are Dylan Cruz, who was actually picked above Langford last year. Number two, he was the Golden Spikes winner. This is a guy who, like, just transformed his approach from year two to year three at LSU, helped the Tigers win a College World Series title over Wyatt Langford's Florida. Um, you know, you look at his strikeout to walk ratio was absolutely insane. Last year, he led the nation in walks with 71 in 71 games. Uh, he was second in OBP. He was fourth in average, second in hits. He cut his strikeout rate from 18.2% to 13.4. Meanwhile, he continued to hit the ball hard. Um, I think he's going to be, has a better chance of being a center fielder than Wyatt Langford does. Um, so, like, he just, the only difference is Dylan Cruz struggled at double A whereas Wyatt Langford continued to climb. I don't generally try to put too much into post-draft performance um, because sometimes these guys are advanced, sometimes they're tired, especially Dylan Cruz playing a long spring that took them all the way to Omaha. Guy got a lot of at-bats. Him being a little fatigued in Harrisburg, I'm not going to knock him for. Uh, but I will give Langford credit because he didn't have those issues. So it, it's it's kind of really close, and you're getting nitpicky here, but that's what you do in some of these rankings. And then number five, Walker Jenkins, Minnesota Twins, another member of that big five. He was taken fifth overall last year. I know some people who think this time next year, Walker Jenkins is going to be the number one prospect in baseball because the bat plays, because he has above average speed, because he has the arm. We just need to see it in pro ball for a sustained length. He did it last year at single A. All the pieces are there for Walker Jenkins to be really, really special. Uh, he's just behind guys who either have upper-level experience or you know, decorated college careers, what have you. He's still only 18 now. He'll be 19 on opening day. Keep an eye on Walker Jenkins because I know he's getting overshadowed shadowed now, but I don't think that's going to happen for very long. Great stuff that is up on the site at MLB Pipeline, of course. Uh, Friday evening. Uh, start time for the top 100 reveal on MLB Network is 7.30, is that what you said? 7, 7 p.m. Eastern 7 p.m. Eastern That time. is when the program will start when it is over. And they, like I highly recommend watching that. I got to watch the recording of that yesterday. Uh, Dan O'Dowd, Jim Callis, Jonathan Mayo, Greg Amsinger, like those guys, really professional. It was really well done. And they get to talk to the number one overall prospect, who, again, I will not reveal, but you want to check that out as well. Um it, it, it was a lot of fun to see that get recorded and it will be out in the world. And then they talk about the top 50, but there's the full top 100 coming to the site. Lots of scouting grades, lots of scouting reports, ETAs on all these guys. Uh, it's You could spend hours diving into this page, and I hope you do. So do I. Uh, you can go find that, of course, at uh, MLB Pipeline. And uh, coming up, Josh Jackson stops by with Ghosts of the Miners, and then we are back to wrap it up on this week's episode of the show before the show.
Miners podcast to bring you another thrilling edition of Ghosts of the Miners. Now, here's your correspondent and host, Joshua Jackson. Welcome back to Ghosts of the Miners, in which all of you out there in Radio Land must identify the legitimate historical ball club or player hiding amidst the fraudulent pair. One once shined briefly on a fringe circuit of yours. The others never got a foot in the pro baseball door. In the last segment, I asked you which of the following minor league baseball players did at one time exist. A. Bam Bamahan. B. Yam Yaryan. C. Zachariah Akariah. You have an ear for the truth if you answered B. Yam Yaryan. Yaryan was around the game a lot of years and achieved a lot in it. So the next time you're seated beside the miners historian at the ball yard, mention Yam Yaryan and you'll hear Yam Yoris you'll ever hear again. Sorry, you'll hear some Yoris. Sorry, you'll hear some stories you'll ever. Oh, you get the idea. <laughs> Yaryan played 81 big league games across two seasons, and it was nothing to yada yada over. While serving as backstop for the Chicago White Sox in parts of 1921 and 1922, Yaryan got on base reasonably consistently and swatted 10 doubles, 2 triples, and 2 home runs. Why did Yam Yaryan ever go back to the minors? You may have already put Y and Y together to realize that with old Yam's break coming as catcher for the White Sox in the early 20s, his only playing time came when he was filling in for Hall of Famer Ray Schock. And it was reportedly another Hall of Famer who yamified young Yaryan. The Iowan was born Clarence Everett Yaryan, but Eddie Collins refused to call him Everett, which is what he went by, and couldn't remember his last name. Well, when Eddie Collins takes to calling you Yam, you Yam what you Yam. <laughs> by any name, Yaryan put together one of the finest minor league careers of the first half of the 20th century, with more than 200 homers and a reputation for some of the farthest hit shots of his day. After Yaryan had played his way up to the bigs over four seasons with Wichita and the Western Association, after his irregular playing time with Chicago had demonstrated just how good he could be, the Seattle Pacific Coast League Club purchased his contract for 1923. Although he never made it back to the majors, Yaryan yithered and yawned his way across the United States, all in all playing for 15 minor league teams beginning with Wichita in 1917, and culminating with the Bruton Millers of the Alabama State League in 1940, when he was 47 years old. Yaryan was skipper of the last five teams he played for, but in January of 1941, Bruton released him on the grounds that they wanted a more active player manager, which shocked and disappointed Alabama baseball fans. The sports editor of the Mobile Press, one Pat Moulton, wrote this in a fond farewell. There's only one thing I can say about Yaryan. I don't believe he ever had an enemy in this game. And that's how the yarn of Yam Yaryan comes to an end. Now, on to the question for next time. Which of these clubs really played blue-collar ball in the minors of yesteryear? A. The Henderson Plumbers. B. The Anderson Electricians. C. The Jefferson Janitors. Want to know the answer? Get to work. Or tune into the next Ghost of the Miners. But for now, you'll have to excuse me. My producer, Ben Hill, is making grilled cheese sandwiches, and I've got to butter him up. We uh, have 
you got to find a diner you know to i'm still thinking about the diners from the first second i gotta go find it i have to have a greasy spoon breakfast it's only i mean it's like middle of the afternoon for you guys it's still pre-noon here i gotta go get some greasy eggs and you can have breakfast at any time that is true that is true that, that is the central tenant of the diner i would say one yeah, of the i would agree with that that's like the pillar upon which the diner is constructed yeah, I could use a diner meal right now. I've not had lunch yet. It's funny, the diner that's located close closest to where I live in Flatbush, Dittmas Park, Brooklyn, is called uh, George's, and it's located on Coney Island Avenue. And there have been times that I've been writing about the Worcester Red Sox because they sell George's Coney Island hot dogs. That My local diner comes up in a Google search because it's George's on Coney, on Island, Coney Avenue, Island Avenue, not George's Coney Island Hot dogs located in Worcester. My goodness. That's pretty funny. Um, you can get all of the uh, news about the Jersey Diners, everything else we've discussed at MLB.com. Uh, the top prospect list, of course, at MLB Pipeline. Be on the lookout for the top 100 and organizational top 30s as those start to come. And um, that'll do it. Big thanks to Josh Jackson for swinging by, as always. And uh, for Benjamin Hill and Sam Dykstra, my name is Tyler Ron, and we will catch you next week. Thank <laughs> you.